welcome back to Wellspring. Um, so glad you guys are all here today. Today, I'm so happy that Chris Evans has come to teach. Um, and she's going to be teaching us from the book of Titus, which this is the first time Chris is teaching this lesson. So it's kind of new. And I'm super excited to hear um, what you have to say this morning. But um, before she comes up, let's review our disciplines. And I know sometimes Wellspring's a different kind of women's study than most any other women's studies out there. <laughs> um, and so it can seem kind of weird that we review our disciplines every week, but really we do that so that we become more familiar with them. Um, and so we're reminded of why we're here, like what our purpose is of being at Wellspring every week. So I'm going to just read the back of our notebooks if you want to follow along, um, and then we'll, we'll move on. So the purpose of Wellspring is to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the word of God so that you and I live gospel-transformed lives which strengthens the church in its gospel purpose. Discipline one is about the heart. The faithful woman of God shepherds her heart worshipfully toward God through the word of God and in particular the gospel. Discipline two is about the home. The faithful woman of God is concerned for those in her home and ministers to them with her heart fixed on God and his word. And then discipline three is about ministry with her heart fixed on God and keeping her God-given ministry within her home a priority. The faithful woman of God steps into the church and every part of life to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. So in my personal Bible reading time. I'm currently studying 1 Timothy. Um, So let's turn there this morning. Um, The sweet thing about knowing that I'm preparing the disciplines is that as I'm reading God's word for myself, I see so many things. I'm like, oh, this this goes with the disciplines. This goes with the disciplines. It's really all through the Bible. So we're going to start 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting reading in verse 12. Um, So this is Paul talking and um, I'm sure we all know who Paul was. (laughs) Paul used to be Saul. Um, He persecuted Christians, and in Acts 9, we can read about his conversion. Um, God spoke to him and told him to repent, and he did, and then God changed his name to Paul, and Paul went on to proclaim the gospel to many, many people who would listen, and many people who didn't. Um, So we're going to start reading in 1 Timothy 1, verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me, and the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. So Paul was quite aware of what he had been saved from. He had been saved from his sin, from the consequences of his sin, 
He was saved from the lies he was believing and living. Ultimately, he was saved from God, from God's wrath against Paul's sin. But he was also saved to something, talks about in here. He not only had his sins forgiven, but he was saved to God, the only one who can bring satisfaction. Paul knew that he was shown mercy and grace and that Jesus would be glorified if he lived his life spent for God's glory. So this eternal perspective that Paul had in regards to his salvation, his sin, and God's mercy, and his purpose for his life is really the same perspective that we should have for our lives. Um, And that is what Discipline 1 is talking about. When it says that we must shepherd our hearts with the gospel, that very last line there, and in particular the gospel. So the gospel is that when we were at our worst, (laughs) when we were hating God, he chose to show us mercy. And that's what Paul's talking about here, mercy, not giving us what we deserve, but instead giving us eternal life in his presence. So we need to remind ourselves of that truth, and that is just a really great place to start when we're shepherding our hearts. So telling ourselves what to think, how to feel, what to say, how to respond, which is what shepherding our hearts is. That's where we start with the gospel. And um, if you remember last time what Smed said, if you are a believer, you can shepherd your heart, and you must shepherd your heart. (laughs) So we need to remind ourselves of the gospel every day. Sometimes multiple times a day, sometimes multiple times an hour, (laughs) or in the middle of a conversation, or when we're putting our kids to bed, or having a conversation with our husband, or a friend, or whatever it might be. And, And always remembering that sin is stubborn, and rehearsing the gospel, preaching the gospel to ourselves is essential, but it won't remove that stubborn sin alone. There's a battle that we must fight to put off sin, and it starts with informing our hearts of what to say and what to think, preaching the gospel to ourselves, but then it needs to be followed by diligent, dependent, repentant obedience. And I need to teach my heart what to say and what to think and what to do from God's word. And then my will and my volition must be engaged to obediently submit myself under it. And the gospel is the only thing that empowers that obedience. So I am so thankful that we're in a mixed condition now. Remember like Smed talked about last week? Because in this mixed condition, Christ can actually engage our will to turn away from sin and obey him um, when previously we couldn't do that. So that's something to be thankful for. And it's so much more possible when I'm reminding myself of what Paul says here. Um, Formerly, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy, and the grace of our Lord overflowed to me. And that is something that we need to remind ourselves of. Praise the Lord for his mercy, not giving us what we deserve. Uh, Praise the Lord for salvation. Praise the Lord for this mixed condition in which we are able to shepherd our hearts in a way that brings honor and glory. And I like how how it ends there, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. So let's pray, and then Chris is going to come on up and teach us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your mercy. We do not deserve salvation. 
we do not deserve your presence. We do not deserve anything we are given in this life. And yet your mercy and your grace has overflowed to us. And you continue to pour blessings upon blessings on us. God, I pray that we would live our lives in such a way that we have that eternal perspective that this life on earth is temporary, it's short, and its purpose is to bring you glory. God, I pray that we use that truth to inform our responses, uh, to inform our actions, our decisions, our, our feelings, the way that we parent, the way that we love others around us. God, I pray that you would always keep our eyes fixed on our future hope that um, when this short life is over, we are spending eternity with you in your presence, um, praising you. And God, that is a, um, a blessing that you have chosen to give us that. God, I pray that while we are here on earth in this mixed condition, that we fight the battle to put off sin, that we um, kill our sin every day. We fill our minds with truth, with the gospel, and then we work to fight our sin. God, thank you for these ladies that are here this morning. Thank you for this ministry, for the elders who have seemed to, to make this a priority for women at Grace Bible Church. Thank you for Chris this morning, for the work that she has done to prepare this lesson for us. Um, and thank you for, for, for giving us places in your word that speak directly to women. There's so much that we can learn there. I pray that we listen this morning with humility, with teachability, a desire to grow. I pray that that even if this sounds familiar to us, it doesn't become rote or something that we think we understand and we don't need to pay attention. God, I pray that there is much growth here this morning. In your name, amen. Thank you, Melissa. I, <clears throat> I love hearing the disciplines talk in different ways. It just always encourages me to continue to um, keep them before me. I think it's so helpful as we make decisions throughout our day um, to keep those in mind. I know it really keeps me focused, and uh, so thank you so much. All right, let's go ahead and open up to the book of Titus. Um, as Smed mentioned, the first week that he was, that, uh, he was here, that you all met, um, Titus 2, 3 through 5 is a unique passage that addresses women in the church. In fact, it's the only place in scripture that tells us specifically what women's ministry with one another um, must be. And that's why this passage is at the core of women's ministries at Grace Bible Church. And so this morning, we wanna be careful to observe these verses um, so that we grow in our understanding of them and in our application of them. And to best do that, I'd like to look at them in context. So um, let's first consider why Paul wrote this letter to Titus. In chapter 1, verse 5, it tells us that the churches in Crete needed to be set in order. So we can conclude that they were out of order. That's why Titus was there. When Paul left Crete, he knew that the work wasn't done. There were people who were not growing in sanctification. Some were looking more like the culture rather than those who were separate, separated from the world. They didn't understand the gospel's implications for godly living 
and a believer's witness to the world. Therefore, these churches needed to be put in order. And Paul makes it clear what was needed to put them in order. First, they needed elders, and verses 5 through 9 address that. And then, starting in verse 10, we see how Paul described a problem in the churches when he wrote that there were rebellious men who said they knew God, but they denied him by their actions, by the way that they lived their lives. And these rebellious men were influencing others. Households were being thrown into confusion because these men were teaching things that they should not have been teaching. There was unsound teaching and ungodly living. And so it shouldn't surprise us that it resulted in disorder. And so Paul wrote to Titus in chapter 2, verse 1, But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Unsound teaching must be corrected with sound teaching, with sound doctrine. And the church must be instructed how to live in light of that doctrine. And that's what we see in verses 2 through 10. Paul addresses men, he addresses women, he addresses slaves. He's addressing everyone in the church, helping all to see that the true believer must think and live in such a way that their lives bear the fruit of God's transforming grace. And Paul describes that grace beginning in verse 11. He writes, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us, that is to set us free from every lawless deed, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. So we see in these verses that grace saves us and grace instructs us to live out what Christ has accomplished for us. God's grace is twofold. It saves us and it instructs us how to live as his redeemed people. And grace's instructions include both what we are to put off, verse 12 uses the word deny, as well as what we are to put on. It tells us how we are to live. Grace instructs us to put on sensible, righteous, godly living. And Titus 2, 3 through 5 spells out in detail what that includes in the life of a believing woman. So, thinking about God, how God's grace instructs us in godly living, let's read from chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. So we see from this passage that grace-directed living is necessary for grace-directed relationships. And both of these are essential for a healthy, God-glorifying church. On your outline, you'll see the summary of our passage. 
The word of God is honored through gospel-transformed older women training gospel-transformed younger women. Now, as we go through these verses, we're, we're going to look at what each of these qualities mean. But before we do, we need to know why they are important. The summary of our passage points to it. We find the why at the end of verse 5. We are to obey these instructions so that the word of God will not be dishonored. God's word was being dishonored in Crete. Some were neglecting and even rejecting the authority of God's word. Verse 1, uh, verse 14 of chapter 1 tells us that they were uh, paying attention to worthless things rather than submitting themselves under God's word. Their minds and their consciences were corrupted. They were living in impurity and disobedience. But we who have been changed by the gospel have the opportunity and the privilege and also the, the responsibility to protect God's word from dishonor through our obedience. Now that word translated dishonor is the same word as blaspheme. We blaspheme when we take that which is God-honoring and holy and do or say something that makes it appear less holy and less God-honoring. We can either bring God's ways down in the eyes of the world, or we can live in such a way that holds them high, that displays them for the world to see how marvelous they are. And so we need to be looking at verses 3 through 5 in light of what we are protecting. We want to hold high God's word, hold high his ways. And so we need to look at, our, at his calling for women in the church, and we need to embrace this calling. We need our hearts to be eager to fulfill the role God is, has given to us as women in the church. This is how we strengthen the church, by pouring into other women. Our church needs us to understand and to live out our God-given roles. This passage helps us see that other women need us, and we need other women. These instructions are deliberate. They are God's design for us to display the transforming power of the gospel in our lives so that we can encourage one another and so that our households will be protected. We encourage one another so that our church is strengthened so that we give the world no reason to discredit God's word, to discredit the gospel. So this passage tells us what kind of women we are to be and how we are to encourage one another. <clears throat> so let's look at Roman numeral number one on our, uh, on our outline. What older women transformed by the gospel must be. Paul begins with, Older women likewise. Now, older women most likely refer to those who are about in their 50s or 60s and beyond. Basically, he's addressing women whose children are grown and the demands of their own household are not as great. He then tells us who we are to be and what we must do. 
this is God's will for us. If you've ever said, I wonder what God's will for me is, this is it. He's, he has spelled it out for us. God has designed this season of our lives for a very specific purpose. This is not a time to step back. This is not a time to focus on ourselves. Instead, God instructs us to be godly women who purposefully invest in helping younger women in our church live out the work of God's grace in their lives. Now, I do want to say, though this is written specifically to older women, I do believe that it has implications for all women. Older is a relative term. Everyone is older than someone. And while it's true that most older women have more opportunity because of the season of their lives, all of us can be doing this to some degree with those who are younger, either in age or in their faith. And also, all of us need to be teachable younger women, no matter what our age, as we learn from other women and let them spur us on in our walk with the Lord. Many of you, though you are younger than me, have taught me so much by your example. We have opportunities to build these kinds of relationships in many different ways in our church. It could be with women that we serve. There can be a lot of ministry taking place holding babies together in the nursery or serving together in NGM. We can build these kind of relationships right here in Wellspring in our discussion groups as well as in our small groups. This can also take place in such practical ways. You know that there's a young, young moms group that gets together every other week just doing fun things together. What an encouragement it would be if you would join that group and just encourage these young moms in their season of, of life. We also have a mentoring ministry for women. There are times when we might benefit from a more formalized relationship with an, an older or a younger woman. So if that's something you're interested in, you can see me after class. Um, I've also put my email down at the, the bottom of the outline. You can contact me. And did applications get put out there? Okay. There, I asked Rachel to put applications out. If there aren't any, you can get them at the info table on any Sunday. Um, so if you have any questions, just uh, you can talk to me about that. <clears throat> so we need to be looking for ways to cultivate these kind of relationships. They're there, we just need to be looking for them. All right, let's look at the characteristics that are listed in these verses. And as we do, I want to encourage everyone here, whether you would consider yourself an older woman or a younger woman, to pay careful attention. Because we need to remember that these kinds of qualities are developed over time. This is the fruit of a woman who is growing in her love for God in his word. This is something we grow into. It doesn't automatically come with age. It is the result of heart shepherding over years. And so whatever season you are in, now is the time to grow into this kind of woman. So let's look at what kind of woman we must be. The, the character of gospel-transformed older women is described in four ways. She's reverent in her behavior. She is not a malicious gossip. 
She's not enslaved to much wine, and she teaches what is good. <clears throat> These qualities are necessary for effective ministry with younger women. Being older women with these qualities is what makes us effective in strengthening our church. This doesn't mean that we have in any way arrived. We know that will never happen. But it does mean that we have placed ourselves on a consistent path of shepherding our hearts with God's word to be women who live obediently under the grace of God. And that we are growing in that. We are maturing in our faith no matter when that faith began. I know that I have often really struggled with the temptation to think that I am not qualified to um, pour into younger women. I was raised in a Christian home, and I know that I have failed in so many ways because I didn't always have a good biblical understanding of what God's Word says about being a wife or about being a mom. And yet, I know that God can use that as well. Because um, I, I think I can, there's a, an opportunity to be honest with younger women and help warn them because I know what a lack of understanding can produce. So failure in the past in an area does not have to disqualify us. God can use it as we pour into younger women and continue to grow in these qualities. So what does it mean to be reverent in behavior? The word reverent refers generally to honoring God. It relates, it's related to the idea of being suitable for the temple, being fully devoted to service. It carries the idea of being set apart and holy. This woman understands that her whole life is set apart and devoted to her calling. The season of her life is to be one of devotion to her God as she fully embraces his design for her as an older woman. And that's what's described in 1 Corinthians 10.31 when it says, Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And this kind of attitude must be cultivated also. Reverence doesn't just happen because we age. Rather, it flows from drawing near to God through his word in all seasons of life and letting the truths of his word saturate our hearts. And we press on and we grow in reverent love for God. And the overflow of it impacts every aspect of our lives. Psalm 119.38 says, Establish your word to your servant as that which produces reverence for you. God's word is established to us as we humble ourselves under the whole counsel of his word. And so we feed our hearts with his word and we fix our minds on the things of the Lord, yielding ourselves to him in obedience and trust and doing all things as an act of worship to him, not just in our quiet time or when we're at church, but always even when no one is watching. This is God's call for all of his people. We are all to deny ungodliness and live lives of worshipful obedience. And older women are to be exemplary in this so that we can encourage other women 
to worshipfully follow Christ in all that they do. Now, this first quality, being reverent in behavior, may be functioning like an overarching quality. Paul may be saying that we are to be reverent in behavior, and then he goes on to list what that looks like. He states three areas of the older woman's life that is to be under control. Number two on the outline is not malicious gossips. So the first thing he addresses is having control over our tongue. The Greek word for malicious gossips is translated as slanderers in the ESV. It is the adjective form of diablos, and it is used 34 times in the New Testament for the devil, the one who accuses and slanders us before God. Slander is literally diabolical. When we gossip and slander, we are speaking against others. James 4.11 commands us not to speak against one another, not to represent others in a negative light, putting them down with the intent that others think less of them and more of us. We can be guilty of slander in what we say, in what we post, in what we share, as well as in what we listen to or read. We need to understand that slander or speaking against one another reveals pride in our heart, a heart that has exalted itself not only above others, but even above God in his word. It, refle it reflects a heart that is judging others rather than humbly acknowledging that God alone is judge of all. We're not going to take time to read it right now, but circle it and go back this week and read James 4, 11 through 12. It really helps us see that. And so as grace instructs us to put off all ungodliness, we need to put on an attitude of humility toward others. When we understand that God alone is the rightful judge, and the only reason that we do not need to fear his judgment is because of the mercy he extends to us through the gospel, then our words will reflect that. They will be gracious and humble and merciful. We will seek to highlight evidences of God's grace in others rather than only highlighting their weaknesses or sin. Slander is sin regardless of who is doing it, but older women must be especially careful. It is absolutely necessary for the ministry that God has given us with younger women. And that brings us to number three on the outline. <clears throat> Older women are not to be enslaved to much wine. This means that we must not be mastered by alcohol. The older woman is to be self-controlled in her habits. Now, God's word does not forbid wine, but we must be careful not to be enslaved to it. That's the emphasis here on the word enslaved. It is a term of bondage. It could be wine, and clearly that was a problem for the women in these churches on Crete. And still today, many turn to alcohol as an escape. The reality, however, is that alcohol can enslave those who hope to escape through it. And alcohol isn't the only thing that that enslaves when it is used as a means of escape or comfort. It could be food or all kinds of electronic devices or distractions or spending 
or exercise. The list could go on and on. We are in danger of bondage if we turn to anything other than our Lord to help us cope. Many of these things can be enjoyed with self-control and thankfulness as good gifts from God. But God himself is to be the believer's comfort. He is our refuge, and true joy is found in him alone. We cannot help other women discover that all they need is in Christ if we ourselves are not convinced that he is everything we need. And then finally, number four, older women are to teach what is good, what is beneficial. This is the effect of godliness, a life that is set apart for God. This kind of woman is to pass on what God has so faithfully taught her. Now, to teach her doesn't necessarily imply that she has a formal teaching platform or even a formal teaching gift. But when she does speak, what comes out of her mouth is biblical wisdom. Proverbs 31:26 says she opens her mouth in wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She speaks from God's word. This means that we are to use every opportunity that we have to teach what is good. As women, we have an opportunity to influence the families and households of our church. And so we must be diligent to be good and beneficial influences, to teach women to obey these verses and not to be influenced by the culture who isn't speaking God's truth. We are equipped to do this with God's word. And so we must know God's word. And that brings us to Roman numeral two on the outline, what transformed older women must train the younger women to be. Verse four begins, so that they may encourage the young women. Older women are to have these character qualities so that they can fulfill their role in the church by encouraging younger women. This is God's calling for older women. As women, we have the special privilege of helping younger women by modeling and teaching godliness of life. Now that word encourage is also translated to train or to instruct or to urge. And it's interesting that even the word itself, that word encourage, carries the idea of instructing someone to think wisely, to be sober-minded and self-controlled over their passions and their desires. It's related to the word sensible that is used throughout the book of Titus. The Legacy Standard Bible translates it this way, so that they may encourage the young women in sensibility. Sensibility carries the idea of being of sound mind. Just as older women are to be self-controlled with their tongue and careful and wise in what they run to, so younger women must learn from the older women to be self-controlled in their thinking and in every part of their lives. And what are older women to encourage, to instruct the younger women? To love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Now as we go through what the younger women are to be trained in, we need to acknowledge that all of these are important. 
There's nothing in this passage that indicates that some of these might be negotiable or optional or less important. And though the first two qualities address specifically those who are married and have children, it also has implications for all women and that Paul is addressing first the household relationships. It's important that we understand God's design in them. Understanding this priority strengthens the church. If you're not married, you can still let this, this passage inform how you think about and understand how God values marriage so that you can encourage your married friends to love their husband as you learn about God's design for love and marriage. So look, let's look at the first one. Older women are to teach the younger women to love their husbands. In the Greek, it is literally to be a husband lover. And it describes who a woman is, not just what she does. And it's based on God's will, not on a husband's worthiness. When Paul wrote these words, marriages were then arranged. And so you can imagine how a woman needed to be trained in loving her husband. And although marriage today is based on personal choice and love, this is still a kind of love that must be learned. This love isn't natural or intuitive. Rather, it is based on God's unconditional love for us. In Psalm 103, it describes God's unconditional love. And again, circle this and read it during the week. This is just such a, a powerful description of God's love for us. His love is immeasurable. It is full of grace and forgiveness and compassion. And because we have the example of his love and the power as new creations in Christ, that is the kind of love that we are to give. We don't have to earn God's affection, and so we must not make our husbands earn our affection. God does not wait until we are worthy to love, so we must freely give unconditional love to our husbands. God loves us when we are stubborn and disobedient, and so we love our husbands even when we feel that he's let us down. A married woman has the privilege of lavishing God's grace on her husband. Now, the word for love here carries the idea of being a friend to our husband. So we have the opportunity to learn what's important to him, his preferences, to learn how to encourage him, to listen to him. We learn how to be a suitable helper to our own husband and not compare him to others. Loving your husband is first in the list of good things that older women are to teach the younger women and the younger women are to learn. After our relationship with the Lord, our husband is to be first in our affection and our priorities. We need to give our best to our husband. And that can be challenging when children have many immediate needs and yet we need to keep a tender heart for our husband and to love him with this kind of love. We never take a break. Our tone, our demeanor, our thoughts, our words, all should express this kind of affection. This is a love that puts God's work in us on display. It points to him. 
This is not a love we wake up every morning naturally ready to give. Our natural bent is to love ourselves, isn't it? But when we draw near to God in his word, dependent on him, he renews us and strengthens us to love like he loves. Older women, this is what we continue to strive for and how we get to encourage the younger women in our church. And the next older women are to encourage the young women to love their children or to be children lovers. Now, although the most obvious application is to mothers, we all have the responsibility to love and cherish children. There are a lot of children around us of whom we can love. There's no shortage of them here right at Grace Bible Church. And so as, um, as with loving our husbands, this is the kind of love that is to be learned because it is also modeled after God's love for us. It is selfless. Now you would think that this love would come naturally for moms, and most mothers do have a natural affection for their children. But even that can be strained when it's 1 a.m. and you're exhausted, either because little ones won't go to sleep or because older ones haven't come home yet. Mothers can easily become discouraged. We can lose sight of the influence God has designed for us to have on our families. On our children and so we remember that loving children is our priority we need to view mothering not as an inconvenience but as a privilege and a pleasure remembering that we are providing an environment where children can learn the things of God our unselfish service as we meet their needs day after day is the perfect setting to communicate to them the selfless love of God. And so we persevere to love our children, not with a natural affection only, but with a biblical one. This means you don't neglect reproof and correction when necessary. You train them in God's ways, caring for their soul as well as their physical needs. And this needs to be done with patience, kindness and a firm commitment not being surprised or annoyed that children need parenting older women we get to remind women that they play an important role in raising the next godly generation we need to keep that before them their work has eternal value and that brings us to sensible now, we've already touched on this. Sensibility deals primarily with the mind or the thought life. It means not running to the edges or extremes of our thinking, but rather striving to be reserved, to have balanced thinking that is not easily moved off center. It's giving each situation its proper weight, not too much, not too little. It's being self-controlled in our thoughts and our emotions. It's submitting ourselves under God's thoughts as he's revealed them to us in his word. Both our thoughts about things that are going on right now, as well as thoughts of things that could possibly happen in the future. Our hearts are easily deceived and can easily lead us away from thinking about what is true and right. We can easily be driven by our emotions rather than trusting God. Now emotions are not necessarily sinful, 
but they make horrible masters. They were never designed to rule us. We do not need to be enslaved to our emotions. God has given us a spirit of sound mind. 2 Timothy 1.7 tells us that. We can use self-control in our thinking. By his grace, we can renew our minds with his word and let his word direct our thoughts and be sensible, viewing all of our circumstances through the lens of God's word so that we protect his word from being dishonored. And that brings us to number four, pure. Pure means to be clean, spotless, morally pure in all ways. It's an inward purity that directs all of our outward choices. Purity has, to, has the idea of being unpolluted. We need, to be, we need to cultivate unpolluted, pure affection for the Lord, rejecting and turning away from everything that competes for our affections, which rightly belong only to our Savior. And when our affections for Him are pure, the overflow of that will be purity in our thoughts and desires, our words and our actions, our relationships. It will guide what we allow into our eyes and our ears, how we dress. So how do we cultivate purity? God's word tells us that we are to eagerly anticipate Christ's return. Listen to what 1 John 3, 2 and 3 says. Beloved, we are, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he, when Jesus appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope, this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. The confidence that we will see him one day makes us purify ourselves. It's gospel promises like these that we use to shepherd our hearts. We meditate on these kinds of verses so that our pursuit of purity points to our Savior's purity, purity and our anticipation of seeing him one day face to face. And then the next thing that is listed is workers at home. <clears throat> This describes a woman who has a heart for her household, who understands the value and the work and the relationships as well as the opportunities in her home. This is a work that is done out of love and obedience to our Savior. The word here is actually an adjective, so you could say that we are to be home-working women. It describes the kind of women we are to be in Christ. And again, it must be learned. And older women must be an example to younger women of how to keep a priority on being a worker at home. And it is no more optional than any of the other qualities in Titus 2, 3 through 5, no matter our age or our stage. God's work for us in our home has purpose in every season of life, and God's word is dishonored if we neglect this. All of the relationships in our home are a priority in this work, honoring others above ourselves, being the aroma of Christ, and cultivating conversations that make much of our Lord. 
whether it's people that you live with, like your immediate family or your roommates, or people who visit your home. Working in our home allows our homes to be useful in ministering to others. Another priority in this work is serving and managing our home to help them run smoothly. Often it includes meeting needs, preparing meals, washing clothes, cleaning. And so it might be helpful to organize time and space so that life goes more smoothly for those in your home. In some seasons, the work of home is so demanding that there is very little time or energy left over for anything else, even other good things. In other seasons, the demands are lighter and we have more opportunity to serve others. There are also seasons when it may be appropriate for a woman to not only be a worker at home, but also in the workplace, to be employed somewhere in some way. But that needs to be given careful, thoughtful consideration to how we can be faithful as workers at home, even when we are also working outside of our home. If we're married, we need to be praying and talking with our husbands to have wisdom and unity in these decisions so that we are protecting our role as a worker in our home and embracing the value this role has as God, as God says it does. If we are not denying worldliness in our thinking as grace instructs us to, then we may actually resent our role. Even if we understand the good in being a worker at home, we can easily fall prey to laziness or discontentment there. Can I just remind you, we can be at home and yet not be workers at home. And so again, renewing our mind throughout each day with the truths of God's word is where the battle for faithful diligence and contentment in our service is won. And being a worker in our home is a wonderful opportunity for offering ourselves to God as a living sacrifice. Ephesians 2.10 tells us that God is the one who prepared the work he has for us, and he is the one we are serving. And he is the one who supplies his abundant grace to be a joyful, delight, uh, diligent worker at home. And that brings us to number six, kind. This is a kindness or goodness that comes from the heart and then overflows into words and actions that benefit others. It's an eagerness to do good to others, showing kindness with our words, our tone, even our facial expressions. And we need to take this, <clears throat> we need to take note that this comes right after being a worker at home. Sadly, our homes can often be the place where we are careless about being kind. When we are not kind, it actually reveals what we truly value. It could be convenience or respect or control over our schedules. It could even reveal that we are valuing something really good. But when those things become idols in our hearts, we are sinning against the Lord and we need to repent not only of our unkind words or selfish actions, but most importantly, of loving or valuing something so much that we are willing to sin against our Savior by being unkind to others. 
And so again, we renew our minds, we shepherd our hearts with the gospel, where we behold the kindness of God. Passages like Titus 3, 3 through 7, help us see how God responds to our foolishness and disobedience with kindness and that is completely undeserved. Okay, circle it, more homework. Uh, we don't have time to go over it, but what an amazing ver passage that is. It helps us see God's kindness, and it is his kindness that enables us to be kind, even when others are not. And so each day we go to his word and remind ourselves of his kindness to us in the gospel, and then we reflect his kindness in how we treat others. And then finally, number seven, being subject to our own husbands. Now, being subject means to submit, or literally to arrange under. This means that we are to voluntarily, without resentment, line ourselves up under the authority that God has ordained for us. In this case, our husbands. Turn to Ephesians 5. Um, we're going to start in verse 22 and just kind of work through that a little bit. This passage helps us to better understand God's design in submission. It is so helpful <clears throat> because it shows us that our role in marriage, the husband is the head of his wife and the wife submitting to her husband, are pointing to something much greater, something eternal. Verse 22 begins with, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Notice that phrase, as to the Lord. The Lord is our master. He is the one we trust as we submit to our husbands. For that reason, we submit lovingly and joyfully, regardless of our husband's spiritual condition or leadership. We do it out of obedience to Jesus. Verse 23 continues, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also head of the church he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their own husbands in everything. So the role of the husband and the wife are designed to paint a picture of Christ and his bride, the church. The husband's role is to give a picture of Christ's self-giving leadership and care to the church. And the wife's submission to her husband paints a picture for the world to see the church's submission to Jesus. And how does the church do that? We, as the church, submit to Jesus with wholehearted trust and joy. The church submits to Jesus in some things. No, in everything. Not selectively, not with resentment or complaining, but with gratitude. And this is what we get to communicate through our submission to our own husband. It's not that our husbands are perfect like Jesus, but rather submitting to our husband aims to show the same joy and love that the church so shows in her submission to Jesus. And as a wife, we approach that with a submissive attitude, using self-control, and patience as we support our husband's leadership. 
Now, it doesn't mean that we never share our insights where it might be helpful to our husbands as he leads our family, but we do it in a way that honors the Lord. We do it thoughtful of our timing and of our tone and our conversations. And regardless of how it is received, we need to be humble and ready to follow, even when our preferences are different from our husband's. Certainly, this isn't always easy. Marriage is a union of one sinner to another sinner. Husbands aren't always good leaders any more than we are always good followers. Now, if our husband wants us to sin, we have to humbly and respectfully decline. But in all of this, our aim is unity, to show the beautiful union of Christ with his church. Skip down to verse 33. It says, And the wife must see to it that she respect her husband. That word respect helps us see that submission is not just a matter of what we say and do, but it is a matter of the heart. It is choosing on a heart level to respect our husband because of the role the Lord has sovereignly given to him in our lives. And so we need to submit respectfully, not with a cold shoulder or pouting or irritation or with self-righteousness or contentiousness, but with genuine respect in our attitude and our expression. Submission is a heart attitude which we must be ready for each day. And we do that by drawing near to God and his word. That is where we see God's trustworthiness so that we can entrust ourselves to him and his design as we submit to our husband. And as with all of these qualities, we need older women to help us and teach us how to submit in a manner that is pleasing to the Lord. And that brings us to number three. What happens when transformed, transformed women follow God's design? Titus 2, 3 through 5 show the effect of women helping one another live Christ-exalting lives. It's been pointed... She didn't get it on there? Okay. Um, what happens when transformed women follow God's design? This is the shortest one, so this is probably the best one that didn't get on there. What happens when transformed women follow God's design? Melissa, can you help me remember to have her print that off for... It's the second picture. She had a little bit of a problem getting opening up, so I just took a picture of it, so maybe she didn't get the second picture. Okay. Okay, so Titus 2, 3 through 5 shows the effect of women helping one another live Christ-exalting lives. So it's been pointed out often throughout this lesson. Again, we see it at the end of verse 5. So that the word of God will not be dishonored. It's helpful for me to think of this as concentric circles. It's like throwing a pebble into a pond and the ripples come out from it. 
the, the very center is the impact of God's word and how that his word affects our own hearts. And that impacts us all day long, beginning in our homes, and then that expands into our church where women help one another grow. And as we do that, God's word is honored, the church is strengthened, and God is glorified. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your word. And we are so thankful for this passage. Thank you that you, in your wisdom and kindness, show us exactly how we are to help strengthen our own church as women, how you, how you have designed us to be part of a church that strengthens one another, how women's, is, women's ministry is to take place with one another. Father, I pray that no matter what our season, our stage of life is right now, Father, that all of us would remember the qualities of what we as older women are, who we are to be, so that even beginning at a young age, Father, that we will strive for these things, seek for these things. And as older women, Father, that we will be very careful to live in this way so that we can have effective ministry with younger women. Father, I pray that we will be the kind of examples, although certainly not perfect, but that we will strive to be the kind of examples that younger women can follow. Father, I pray that uh, in the season where demands of life are less, that we will in no way take this as a season of doing things merely for ourselves, but that we will take seriously the role that you have for us in this season, that we will lovingly and eagerly step into the lives of younger women. And Father, I pray that uh, younger women will be eager to learn from older women, that they will see it as a means of your grace in being instructed in how you desire for them to live as well. And Father, I pray now that as uh, we go to discussion groups, Father, that there would be um, great discussion around your word, that we will seek to honor you, that we will seek to um, give input from your word to one another, that we will be humble to learn. And Father, I pray that as we uh, dwell on and think on the homework in this passage over the next couple of weeks, that we will um, seek you and look for ways that you desire for us to grow in these things. Father, we know that we live in a culture where many of these things are not held high, and certainly your word is not. I pray that by our obedience to these things, that your word would be held high and honored and esteemed by a watching world. And so would you use us, Father, for your glory, and we pray these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen.